Matthew 1, 1 through 17, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Sarah, way to go with reading that passage of Scripture. I think y'all want to thank Sarah, right? <laughs> well, Merry Christmas to you. Keep your Bibles or Bible journals open to Matthew chapter 1. What you just heard um, is the very beginning of the New Testament. The very first words of the book of Matthew, which is one of the four Gospels, which tell the life of Jesus... And show us the good news of what God has done to redeem us through Jesus Christ. So, the question that comes up is this. Why does the gospel of Jesus Christ begin with something as boring as a genealogy? Fair enough, right? That's the obvious question, and the obvious answer is this. Have you seen the Marvel movie Black Panther? Mmm, now you see what I'm saying. There's an important moment in Black Panther, in the Marvel movie, when an unidentified soldier in chains is led into the throne room of Wakanda, and at some point... King T'Challa says to the unidentified soldier, what is it you want? And the unidentified soldier replies, I want the throne. 
The room scoffs and an uproar emerges. And a minute later, the unidentified soldier yells across the room, Ask who I am! King T'Challa's brilliant sister steps forward and rattles off the details that she has found through her initial research. You are Eric Stevens. You're an American black operative. You're a mercenary nicknamed Killmonger. That's who you are. And the unidentified soldier grins and says, That's not my name, princess. He looks at T'Challa and he says, Ask me, king. Ask me who I am. And finally, at the climactic moment of the scene, one of the tribal elders raises his voice and says, Who are you? And the soldier replies, I am Njakata, the son of Prince Njobu. And silence falls over the room. Everybody realizes that this answer changes everything. Why? Because you see, knowing his lineage tells you his identity. Knowing his lineage tells you about his ability to make a claim to the throne. Knowing his lineage tells you about his mission and his purpose in Wakanda. And the New Testament begins with a genealogy. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy for the same reason. Knowing the lineage of Jesus tells you something important about Jesus' identity. Knowing the lineage of Jesus tells you something important about Jesus' ability to make a claim to the throne. Knowing Jesus' lineage also tells us something important about Jesus' mission and purpose here in our world. Now, the analogy is imperfect for a lot of reasons. (laughs) One of which being that in the Black Panther movie, the unidentified soldier is a bad guy. Jesus is not a bad guy, I'm promising, okay? And for another reason, the Black Panther is a fictional story. And some of you are like, Wakanda's real to me. Okay, but it's a fictional story. That's where it began, okay? Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ is not telling us a make-believe story simply here to stir our hearts. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy to tell us the identity of a man named Jesus Christ who really and truly lived in this world in history. And so as we look at this genealogy, I want to suggest to you four things that we learn about Jesus Christ and His identity and His mission as we consider His lineage. Here's the first point about Jesus' identity and mission is that Jesus came to secure the promise to Abraham. Now you might have already noticed that this genealogy might have noticed that this genealogy has a bit of structure to it. Verse 1 gives us a headline. This is 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's kind of a headline version. And then it's going to rewind and go through that whole thing in detail, right? And then as the story or as the genealogy unfolds from verse 2 down to verse 16, your paragraph markers probably give you the indication that it unfolds in three sections, the first of which in verse 2 begins with Abraham was the father of Isaac. And then verse 17 is kind of a summary of the whole genealogy, and here's Abraham emphasized once again in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but other genealogies would give us the impression that there are many more than 14 generations in some of these sections. And Matthew, I don't, we don't have any reason to think that Matthew was uninformed about these details, that the book of Luke and the Old Testament would confirm quite clearly. He's summarizing, but he's summarizing in a stylized way to make a point in a stylized way to say, in these 14 generations, in these 14 generations, in these 14 generations, at the fullness of time, Jesus Christ arrived at the fulfillment of what has been happening all along. But here's a question I want to consider with you for a minute. Why is Abraham so emphasized in this genealogy? One of, uh, about, Two years ago, we sent a whole group of people from our church to go and serve in Cambodia. It's a really cool thing. Um, they were serving at a school uh, just outside of Phnom Penh. And one of the coolest things to come back from that missions trip to go and serve kids in Cambodia was this video. This video that included our friends, an elder in this church, a dignified and respectable guy, in a gathering of about three or four hundred kids, leading them with wild gestures in a rousing version of Father Abraham had many sons. And I am one of them. And so let's just praise the Lord. And some of you may remember this video that we showed as often as we could of Tim leading this rousing song with all of these kids. And there's really no reason to share that story except that I like it. But, um, but actually that, that song, Father Abraham Had Many Sons, it actually tells you kind of something important about Abraham. The theme of the song gets at something important is that Abraham is the father, if you will, of God's people. He's the father figure, humanly speaking, of God's people. And this is tied to a promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham, quote, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then listen to this, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will make of you a great nation and in you all the families or all the ethnicities or all the nations of the earth shall be 
blessed. Father Abraham was the father of the people of Israel. And more than that, Father Abraham received a promise that in him, through his family line, every, every nationality would be blessed. We're going to jump way ahead here for a second in Matthew's Gospel. But it's worth noticing that while the book of Matthew begins with an allusion to Father Abraham, who received a promise about all the nations being blessed through him, the book of Matthew ends with Jesus Christ, after his death and resurrection, standing up and saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You see, this isn't just incidental, this connection between Jesus and Abraham. There's something significant here. There's something about the lineage of Jesus that shows us something about his identity and something about his mission. He is uniquely qualified. He's uniquely qualified to spread the blessing of God to every ethnicity, to every culture, to every nationality, to every tribe on this planet. In Him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, from page 1 of the New Testament, it is clear that Jesus is the one who can fulfill this promise of God's blessing for people around the world as far as the curse is found. The lineage of Jesus shows us that Jesus came to secure the promise of Father Abraham. It's a promise of blessing that would reach to every corner of this planet. And so as we consider why Jesus came and what the lineage tells us about him, this is a first answer to our question about why he came. As the son of Abraham, he came to gather God's people. He came to gather the people of God by faith. From every nation. Which means Jesus came to secure God's blessings for orphans in Cambodia. And he came to secure God's blessings for sophisticated skeptics in Tokyo. And he came to secure God's blessings for school children in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And he came to secure God's blessings for Middle Eastern and Asian, and Latino, and black, and European folks in Aurora, Illinois, in America. Jesus came to spread the blessing of Abraham throughout this world as far as the curse is found. Here's a second point that we need to notice in the genealogy. is that the genealogy suggests not only that Jesus came to secure the promises to Abraham, but also that he came to secure the promises made to David. Or, more specifically, we might say that he came to secure the throne of David. This is the second section of our genealogy. There's a movement from Abraham in verse 2 to David, the son of Jesse, in verses 6 and, or throughout verse 6. David, who we know as king. David, like Abraham, is emphasized up in verse 1 in the headline version of this passage. Why is it that David gets emphasized as part of the lineage of Jesus? 
In his own lifetime, God made a covenant promise to David while he was still alive, telling David that his descendant would reign forever in God's kingdom. Why is David featured so prominently here in the genealogy of Jesus? Because Jesus came to reign as God's forever king. Because Jesus came to claim the throne of David forevermore. Now this point is a little bit complicated for us to grasp because as Americans, we're not really predisposed to like kings, right? The last king we had, King George, we got rid of him and we haven't looked back since, right? And our movies reflect this. You go back to the Black Panther, right? When someone says, I want to claim the throne in one of our films, there's usually a bad guy, right? It's a bad guy who wants to get the throne. And why does he want to get the throne? For selfish reasons. And what is he going to do with his selfish exercise of power? He wants to kill and destroy for his own glory. So we have a hard time hearing about this promise of a king and getting excited about it. But here's the thing. What if there truly is a kingdom with the ability to save people all over the world? A kingdom ruled not by a selfish, not ruled by a, a selfish monarch, but by a humble king who came not to be served, but to serve. A humble king who was prepared even to give his own life, not to take, 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 but who came to give, give, give his own life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' day, the hope of great King David's greater son loomed large in the Jewish mind. The prophet Isaiah Many generations before the birth of Jesus had spoken a word that touched on some of the, the deepest longings of the Jewish people. And, and if we can dare to imagine a king who comes not to be served but to serve, a picture that reaches somewhere deep in our own hearts as well. A picture comes in Isaiah chapter 9. A picture of a son of David. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Do you ever get tired of the government resting on the shoulders of unreliable people? Who promise so much and never fulfill on what they promise? Do you ever get tired of the government resting on the shoulders of those who are seeking their own good instead of the good of others. The prophet Isaiah invites us to dare to dream. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. And he'll be called Mighty God and he'll be called Everlasting Father. Here to care for you. Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of His government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, Isaiah 9 promises. Listen, friends, we've lived in a world where most of those who try to make claims for thrones are not worthy of our ultimate allegiance or trust. But God's Word invites us to dare to dream of a different kind of king. One worth living for because he died for us. The lineage of Jesus demonstrates that Jesus came to claim the throne of David and inaugurate a kingdom that would spread peace and justice forevermore. Here's a third point about what the genealogy suggests about Jesus' identity and mission. It's that he came to secure not only the promise to Abraham and the throne of David, but he came also to secure the longings of the exiles. Something that sometimes we overlook in this passage is this thing that verse 12 names as the deportation to Babylon. What's this deportation to Babylon all about? We need to understand that as we read through this list of names, I think we kind of instinctively realize these are a bunch of Bible people. But here's the thing. As we read through this list of names in Scripture, generally speaking, we're reading through a list of scoundrels and sinners. Take even for a moment Abraham. Father Abraham, the patriarch of the faith who not once but twice, in a moment of fear and moral failure, gave his wife into other people's harems to protect his own hide. Oops. That's not even an oops. I shouldn't joke like that. Consider King David. You've heard the story of David and Bathsheba. Do you know how the Lord assesses that story? The end of 2 Samuel chapter 12, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Bible doesn't pull any punches even with Father Abraham and great King David. Even these great leaders turned out to be scoundrels and sinners. And as we read through the list, we read about life after life that was characterized by moral failure and various kinds of train wrecks. In fact, I'm going to do this. I wasn't going to do it for the sake of time, but I'm feeling it. The book of First and Second Chronicles tells us the story of the kings of Israel from David all the way to the deportation of Babylon. tells us exactly what this first two-thirds of our passage tells us about. And here's the summary at the end of Second Chronicles. 
of what that story was like. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. Therefore, He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed them with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin Old man or aged, he gave them all into his hands. And all these vessels, all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants or slaves to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Do you hear what was going on generation after generation in this lineage of kings leading up to Jesus, there were two great themes playing out over and over and over again. The first great theme was the theme of the faithfulness of God, the patience of God. He warned them and warned them and warned them. He offered His Word. He called them to repent. But then there was this second theme over and over and over again. Not only the theme of the faithfulness of God, but the theme of the people's unrighteousness and unfaithful to their Redeemer. Exile was the cataclysmic result of the sins of God's people. And so for those generations in the lineage of Jesus who lived in Babylon, from the time of the deportation until the time of the return, there were longings in their hearts. And do you know what those longings were? Those longings were for forgiveness and for restoration of all that was lost. The people of God who sinned against their Lord and turned their backs on Him, and no matter how many times He patiently reached out, the people of God who now are living in slavery as a result of their own sins, they now long for forgiveness and reconciliation with their Maker. And more than that, they long for a restoration of everything that was lost kind of echoes back to an earlier moment in the story of the Scriptures, way, way, way back at the beginning, further back than David, further back than Abraham, 
the story that's told in the first three chapters of the Bible. The story that's told of God's creation of humanity and His fellowship, His nearness, His closeness with His own people. And yet the story of how we turned. We turned away from our Maker. We turned away from Him into sin. And as a result, we were sent away. As a result, we were exiled from His nearness and exiled from His very presence. Which is why, as the prophet says to the people of God, your sins, we can personalize it, our sins, have created a separation between you and your Maker. And so like those exile generation people of God who long for forgiveness and long for some way to be reconciled with the one who made us to know him, the one who made us to be loved by him. We live with this longing in our hearts to be restored with him and to see the restoration of all that's been lost as a result of our sins. And the New Testament, fully aware of these deep longings in the exiles' hearts, the New Testament, fully aware of those deep longings in our own hearts to be reconciled with God and to see the restoration of all that has been lost. The New Testament begins with an assurance that Jesus comes to deal with these very things. Jesus comes to secure the longings of the exile. He comes to secure the promise of forgiveness of all our sins. The promise and the possibility of reconciliation with God. Not by just getting a fresh start and doing it right a second time. I mean, generation after generation after generation, they got another chance. And did they get it right? No. You, I, we have had our second chances and our third chances and our fourth chances. Are we going to get it right? No. But we need some way from outside of ourselves. We need some way back to be forgiven and to be reconciled with our Maker. And here in the story of the, or here in the, the, the genealogy that tells us the account of the lineage of Jesus, we learn that Jesus came to secure the longings of those who have been exiled from God's presence. He's come to secure the forgiveness of sins and eventually, ultimately, the restoration of all that was lost. But there's a fourth point that this genealogy suggests about Jesus' identity and mission that I don't want to miss. It's a little bit of a surprise element of this genealogy. In Jesus' time and place, in the culture, when Matthew wrote this genealogy, you didn't have to include the names of any women. You could just list off all the fathers. And so it's interesting to us that at five different points, Matthew tells us not only about the fathers of Jesus, but also about the mothers of Jesus as well. Take a look here with me if you would. In verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
If you've read Genesis 38, you know that Tamar's story is not rated G. She dressed up as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law so that she could have children. I'm not sure any culture in the world that would say, awesome. I'm going to keep going on in the story a little bit further. Down in verse 4, we end up, or excuse me, in verse 5, we read about Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. When the spies come to the land, they meet a woman of the night, a prostitute, a woman who makes her living in that way. And yet, because of her faithfulness to the Lord's people, the Lord spares her. And then after that, she ends up marrying one of the Lord's people. And now she's part of the lineage of Jesus. Keep reading. In verse 5, we get not only Tamar and Rahab. In verse 5, we also hear about Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. She's not Jewish, like Rahab wasn't Jewish, like Tamar wasn't Jewish. You noticing a theme here? She's not from their clan. She's not from their tribe. She's not one of them. But here is Ruth, a Moabite, an ancient enemy, a person from an ethnic group that was known for animosity with God's people for reasons deep into the Exodus story itself. And yet here is this Moabite woman who has suffered and grieved so much woven into the story of the Messiah. We keep going. We get down to verse 6. Matthew puts it in kind of a cunning way, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. How did Uriah die? Yeah. <laughs> there were problems there. There were problems there. And yet Bathsheba becomes a part of the lineage, the family of Jesus Christ. And then we get down to the end of this story in ver or the end of this genealogy in verse 16 which includes Joseph the husband of Mary the teenage girl living in a small town in a conservative traditional culture who is growing large with child prior to her wedding ceremony what is the theme that we notice in all of these women? Matthew includes them together to remind us that Jesus came to secure the belonging of many outsiders. A couple of these women were involved in prostitution. And what do the accusing voices say? Several of these women were involved in sexual scandals. What does the accusing voice say to those who are involved in sexual scandals? You don't belong here. 
Several of these women are from ethnic minority groups among the people of God. And what does the accusing voice say? You don't belong here. All of these women, for one reason or another, would have been viewed as outsiders. If, if you look at the world the way that, say, the Pharisees looked at the world, you would look at any one of these women and their track record and say, you don't belong here. And yet, here they are. Outsiders by the judgment of human beings brought in close to the very family of Jesus by the grace of God. I wonder what the accusing voices say to you. Maybe about your own history and your own past. You know what you did. You don't belong here. I wonder what the accusing voices say to you about experiences of great suffering in your life. You don't belong. I wonder what the accusing voices say because of horrific injustices that you've experienced. You don't belong here. When we find ourselves as an ethnic minority group, accusing voices may say, But here's what I want to say to you. When the accusing voices tell you that you don't belong, tell them you're with King Jesus. When the accusing voices tell you that you don't belong around here, tell them you're with King Jesus who came to bring the outsiders near. When the accusing voices tell you that you don't belong around here, tell them you're with King Jesus who came and gave his life so that many outsiders can be brought not just near but into the very family of God. When the accusing voices tell you that you don't belong here, tell them you're with King Jesus. And there's a couple quick implications I want to draw out about that. I wonder if we reflect the inclusivity of Jesus very well. I wonder if we're as inclusive as Jesus is in our lives, in our relationships with other people. And I don't mean being inclusive just in the way that we imagine Jesus would be. The real Jesus didn't take sin lightly. But the real Jesus draws those from the outside in close. I wonder if we're as inclusive as Jesus in our relationships with other people. And more importantly than that, more importantly than that, I wonder if you've found your place in the family of King Jesus. I wonder what would keep you from finding a home in his family by grace, through faith, in the journey of following him throughout this life until he returns and we see him face to face. I wonder what would keep you from finding a home in the family of King Jesus. In this passage, 
the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to the identity and the mission of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is saying, ask me who he is. And the Holy Spirit shows us he is the long-awaited Messiah. The hopes and the fears of all the years are met in him tonight. And therefore, we are invited. Therefore, you are invited. We are invited to draw near, not on the basis of how squeaky clean our record is. Not on the basis of how we've figured things out and put them together. We're invited to draw near on the basis of His grace. By faith in Him. In that journey of following Him until we see Him face to face. I wonder if you've found your place in the family of God. Today, tonight... I'd like to invite you to come and find your home in his family. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. We take the Lord's Supper week by week as a relational thing. It's not just kind of a formal thing that you do. It's not just kind of an outward thing. It's a relationship with Jesus thing. He sets before us a table. It's a miniature feast. It's not a real big, full-blown feast like we'll experience on the last day. It's a mini feast. But it's a feast that represents His love for us and reminds us of His real love and that He is the kind of King who came to give His life as a sacrifice for our sins. And it's a feast that reminds us that He came and gave His life not just so that we could feel less guilty, but so that we could be drawn in close to know Him and feast with Him. Today, if you're not following Jesus as your Savior, we'll ask you to hang out where you are for just a minute. How often do you get a couple minutes to just reflect? We'll ask you to hang out where you are, and we'll close with a Christmas song in just a minute. The reason we make that suggestion is because taking the Lord's Supper is a sign of faith in Jesus. To take it without faith is kind of to take it uh, hypocritically or something like that. We'll ask you to hang out where you are. Nobody's judging you. But if that's you and you're not following Jesus, we would love to invite you, even today, even this evening, even this Christmas season, even tonight, to find your home in the family of God by Jesus' grace and through faith in Him, even now. And for those who are living by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave Himself for us, you may come to take the bread and the cup in glad-hearted remembrance of our great Redeemer. You may come.